Bobby, can you share some context to your role and responsibilities at Netflix? Sure. Thank you uh, for, for inviting me to participate in this conference. Um, I was fortunate to work from Netflix from 2013 to 2017, so about four years where the company uh, was expanding globally. Uh, I think I was there around 30 countries, and when I left, 180. So fortunate to uh, be part of that expansion, see what went well, what didn't. I'd say the other big initiative during that time was the Originals Initiative, where now it just seems like that's what the company is. But you have to remember, at my time, it was sort of licensing heavily. And I think my first week there, they just launched House of Cards, and now you know it's an original every day. So my role largely focused on those two initiatives during the time, which were two big company initiatives. You know how you sequence the countries, how you allocate capital into those markets to acquire subscribers, which shows perform best, and how to market those shows. How to think about pricing and everything in between to just grow the service. So I was in a corporate planning group uh, working to allocate capital across those initiatives. How did you look at modeling subscriber growth in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, Netflix looks at it a couple ways. I think when folks want to think about it, the addressable market is broadband households. Just because you have a TV doesn't make it enough to uh, get Netflix. We know you need a broadband or at least a high-speed connection of some sort. Uh, And so the U.S., there's about, I believe, 80, 90 million uh, broadband households. And so they look at that sort of as their ceiling. Uh, Several years ago, you know, they put out sort of their long-term view when they were much earlier in the investment thesis to say, we think in the U.S. we can get 60 to 90 million. That is where cable and satellite packages of 50, 100 channels went. Uh, We're much lower priced. We're much more convenient. So why can't we do that? Uh, They've already passed the 60 million domestically. Uh, Can they get to that 90 million to match where, you know, cable and satellite bundles have been? It's a little harder to imagine with a product now having no live news, no live sports, that it's a full replacement for cable television. So will I get to 90? It seems further away. Uh, I think growth, I believe their question is around uh, forecasting the sort of subscriber growth, will be lower in the U.S. And they're very explicit about that. I think that most of the growth is international. And that is when we looked at similarly, how many homes had a paid TV package and were willing to pay $50, $100. Now we pay $15 for a Netflix subscription, which gives you a comparable amount of content, a better personalization recommendation on demand across any device. Still not that live viewing, still not maybe as much local content as you might have expected, although they're getting better at that. And so I think they look at those sort of penetration rates of where cable packages got, where broadband is in a country as a, as a sort of precursor to them. And so in some developing nations, that's harder. I mean, as they move into those developing nations like India and others, they might even forego those proxies and look a little more at mobile penetration where, you know, India never had widespread sort of uh, 100 package cable channels with $50 and really never even had broadband adoption at scale and is moving straight to a mobile infrastructure. Now, they'll think about it very differently with lower price points. But the, the key value is they believe, you know, entertainment of TV and movies is a universal value proposition. And this will, in many ways, replace the existing channels, just like uh, smartphones replace landlines. It's only a matter of time before streaming video services replace uh, linear television packages. And whether that takes two services or three services or one, Netflix helps to be part of the mix. And you're talking about a very, very big market that has been built over you know, a century of, of TV infrastructure now shifting to a digital infrastructure. And so this is merely a replacement versus sort of a new category that, that um, exists on top of it. So given Netflix are, I think, what, 72 million in the US, it could be likely that they might be moving into news and sports relatively sooner than expected if they want to get to that 90, 100 million subs in the US. Yeah, I'll take the other side of it. I don't think they want to move into it, nor do they need to for growth. I think to to further saturate the U.S., they would probably move into news and sports more aggressively. Uh, But 
but they are growing just fine in the U.S. and they're growing even better internationally. So I don't think they have to, I think they would view that as a distraction tax for a few reasons. If they were to move into news and sports, live is largely supported by advertising. Advertisers pay premium, people don't skip the commercials as much. So do they want to go out and build an ad sales force of you know, hundreds and thousands of employees, uh, insertion of dynamic ads, data, which Facebook and Google have been collecting for years to do this at scale? It, it, it's sort of beyond you know, their focus right now, especially when they have this massive, massive opportunity to take what they've already done and port that mostly over to just new countries with different content. So, uh, you know, they're dabbling with news and sports and reality and other categories, and, and they'll push those, but you'll see, you know, non-scripted, the reality competition shows they're doing being, you know, before sort of news and sports. And, and you know, those categories are real. Sports is extremely challenged, so maybe that'll shake out over the next few years, but I don't see it as a near-term focus. Can't they bundle sports into a premium plan rather than ads? Certainly, right? And, and so I think Disney does that very well with Disney, and then you add Hulu and you add PSPN, it goes from $5 to $15. It's cheaper when you get all three. They could. They could. I, I, that would be a strategy to raise price, which they're doing effectively, right? They just did a $2 price increase a year. They're talking about great retention. They're growing the U.S. base despite being saturated. The retention is in play. And they're able to move price across the globe up over time. So why add more content that requires more cost and, and you know, all of that? Uh, secondarily, like the sports rights are locked up for a longer time, so they don't come up. So, you know, every time they do come up right, the conversation with Netflix comes up, will they bid, will it happen? One of these days it'll be true, but I don't think in, again, the next 18 to 24 months, any of those rights are sort of pending, nor Netflix would have the technology ready to go. But there will be a point where Netflix's growth slows and they have to look at those spaces and see if it makes sense for them, just not in the near term. So in the early days, then, you were modeling subscriber growth on, like you said, household, number of households in the U.S., plus, um, I guess, you know, the broadband or smartphone penetration or iPads, for example, to, to get distribution. As we do get to kind of saturated markets in that sense, does it shift more towards content and new content driving subgrowth? I think so. I think there's still an underlying seasonality that exists, um, just like, in most industries, right? Summer has always been a big movie season, you know, minus this year, people went to the summer box office, theaters put their best movies in that disproportionately, retailers disproportionately benefit in the holiday season to make most of their sales or back to school. So, so there's natural seasonality to streaming video. And for the last decade, that has largely been around Q4 and Q1, where people buy devices, device manufacturers launch new TV, home electronics, and then sign up for Netflix because that's what those smart sort of devices do very well. And so you'll always see a disproportionate uh, sort of sign-up period around Q4 and Q1. Uh, but that's sort of what any analyst can predict. Now, when you can outperform and underperform, maybe it's because you have some content that helps sort of lift the quarter. So you were going to get a million subscribers in Q4 anyways, just because that's when Apple and Samsung released their new devices. And all of a sudden, Netflix you know, sort of reports at 1.5 million. Well, they might have just had a surprise success with one of their new originals, a season two. And so originals can bend it. It doesn't usually take that million to two million, but one to 1.2. And it's usually not a single original. Now they're putting together, you know, a series of things like Tiger King and an action movie and, and you know, returning season of The Crown, all in one quarter, sort of put it together and they outperform. So I think content increasingly can overperform or underperform, but there is still an existing adoption cycle that is just going to happen almost if Netflix did no more getting our new content of users saying this is a superior product compared to my linear television package, which is three times expensive, half as convenient, 
and half the selection with commercials. So, so that will naturally just happen as people say this is a better product, and then it'll happen even faster as the content is, is excellent. I want to get onto content growth and spend specifically later on. Looking at pricing, how does Netflix look at pricing in the U.S.? They just commented, I believe, on their last two earnings calls that they're not looking at a price increase. They have taken a dollar, I think, each of the last two years, and then and two dollars, if my uh, history serves me correctly. And each time they do that, they you know produce a sort of a little bump in churn. Existing customers get a little frustrated. New customers maybe a little less apt to go, and, and they have sort of a slower growth quarter and and the doomsdayers come out and say this is the end and then you know further quarters down the line you see it come back and they take their time and they usually sort of talk about the right they've earned the right to increase price they're spending you know significantly more uh in content the product is significantly better with you know better recommendations better uh, marketing better customer service and customers are essentially retaining better than they ever have and for that product, they say they're going to charge you a little more. So you used to get, you know, Netflix now spending $15 billion in content versus $10 billion. That means the number of shows, the number of you know, movies that could be produced at a theatrical level are there. And they think they can charge you a little more. So I, I, I think they think very actively about price. But they, in the U.S. at least, they have taken a lot of the price sort of there. They are, I think, smart and sensitive to the time the world is in right now where you know, we, we are in a severe recession, potentially depression, and there's a lot of scrutiny around internet companies and sort of their, their power. So I think they're going to be very careful there. Um, but the real question is, if you look at more of a, a, a five-year view, do they have pricing power domestically? And I, I absolutely believe they do, right? They're going to continue to accelerate their spend. They're going to continue to accelerate the number of shows and the number of categories like unscripted and theatrical movies that they are investing in. Um, and I think that will eventually result. I mean, imagine, you know, you take these movies. Disney is now going to experiment with bringing a $30 super premium movie that was supposed to go to theaters like Mulan and bring it on to Dr. Disney Plus and expect consumers to pay your regular subscription fee and $30 on top of it. Netflix would take that same movie that is maybe on par with the Mulan or the Irishman and give it to users for free um, and back bundled in there. And so eventually they're going to say, you're getting these movies at Disney and Warner are charging you $20, $30 for we're going to take our price from, you know, $13 to $15. And they're still not the price leader. They're behind, you know, HBO Max, which is coming out at $15. Netflix has a $15 price, but it's, its average user is not, they have lower tiers in that. So I think they have people to, you know, a lot of chance to move people up the price tiers, a lot of chance to increase the price value. Um, but I, I don't foresee that in any time in the near term, except that they have that option when they choose to exercise it. And I expect them to exercise it very diligently and very thoughtfully. In terms of exercising that pricing power, does, is that determined mainly by content spend then or the look of viewing hours or what exactly, what variables do they look at to determine that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it is about sort of content viewing, but more directly retention, right? So, so I don't think they have sort of a material view. If you used to watch 10 hours and you retain, but now you only watch five hours and you retain, it's still a retention. Obviously, you know, they would like it to be 10 and retain. Um, but I think they're less focused on total hour consumption. They used to put out these reports that we did a billion hours over the holiday. You know, Amazon streaming, we represent X percentage of all internet traffic. It was very impressive. Um, but I think, you know, would they rather you watch two and a half hours of The Irishman or 10 hours of reruns of Friends? They're probably indifferent, but The Irishman represents something they will have forever. 
Uh, it is uh, an IP associated with them that will never go away. Friends is going to go and leave and go to order uh, a different service in some time. So all hours are not created equal. But certainly we know if you watch more, you retain more. And Netflix, basically retention is a, a signal that I am willing to pay you $13, $14 a month. And I'm so willing to do it that I might even pay more because I've been with you for three years. So I think that is the sort of first factor. Will this turn off the 190 million subscribers they existingly have and create you know, churn, which is, is, the, is the sort of the scar they have from, from the DVD Quickster days when they had the service. They separated it. They did a, a sort of uh, ill-timed pricing increase that resulted in, in massive churn. And ever since then, they have been you know, more thoughtful about it. So they will ask their users for permission. You know, they have implemented grandfathering in the past. They, they'll do it as thoughtfully as can be doing. But yeah, it'll be derived a little less to, you know, can it sign up the next 10 million members as much as it can it, it makes sure it doesn't alienate the existing 200. But it's an interesting strategy from them because they obviously priced very low and it's a great offer for what you get. And so was that a, obviously that was a conscious effort in using the price to almost subsidize or fund you know, the growth in effect by giving such value to the users. I guess the, new, the big challenge now is moving that up to make that free cash flow spurn from, from Netflix. Right, right. I don't think it's a march from, you know, whatever they're 13, 15 to 50 back to the, the, the cable bundle. I mean, maybe for a user, they put together Netflix plus Disney plus Warner and you're at 45, 50 bucks on your own. But I don't think Netflix thinks it, you know, in the foreseeable future is a $50 service. Is it a $15, $20 service? I certainly think they have ambitions there to get that, you know, so, so they're not trying to, that, that's not, where they need to head to get to the free cash flow. The free cash flow is already coming, you know, in the latest earnings at $15 sort of as a ceiling on the price plan. So that they have a path to it. They think about it over the long term. They said, you know, uh, each year free cash flow will expand or losses will expand and then it will become profitable in 21, 22 as we go. So they believe scale is the more important factor versus sort of ARPU. Not that ARPU is, is irrelevant, that if you can get a bigger base of 200, 3 million, 100 subscribers, each paying $15 million versus what cable had, 90 million paying $50, the sort of scale and, and synergy across, you know, a content with people in India watching from America and American watching Indian content, that they will be able to have comparable margins, if not better than the cable and, and, and sort of channel ecosystem ever had. Let's look at international growth then. I mean, you mentioned there just clearly the, the content is global in nature, but what percentage roughly of viewing in international regions is actually for local content versus, say, Hollywood produced them? I don't have specifics that I can share on that. You should think of local content as an important strategy, maybe more again of an acquisition strategy than a retention strategy, but probably both. So, so I mentioned that framework that, you know, everything about price is thinking about the existing $200 million. And it doesn't matter how many new users, 200 million users you get. If those guys are going to go away, then you're just sort of wasting it. And those users, you know, increasingly have a library and the recommendations are well understood. But to get a new user in, maybe in a country, you might want the local star, right? Or the local franchise, right? That, that just resonates more. And, and it doesn't feel like this American invader. So I think India is a classic strategy where they are, investing heavily in Bollywood with the, the top content, the top directors, the top actors, and bringing that in, because that's going to get the first, you know, 10, 20 million subscribers in India. And that local content, well, then, you know, they can, they can license the old stuff, they can bring in their international, you know, domestic US product and European product, and see what actually works in that recommendation algorithm gets better, that they, they figure out all the money they're spending, this is better than that, cut that. 
And so you have to get to some scale. And I think that new acquisition drives that initial user base. It also drives, you know, the 61st million customer in the U.S., but it's much more critical, I think, to get that. But yeah, no doubt that content is, is, is critical. Maybe we can dive deeper into that, but uh, hopefully that sort of laid out a primer there. But, but let's say you're Netflix next year, two years, they have a content budget. They, have a, they didn't allocate to certain regions, I assume. So do you see that as measuring that spend based on, okay, I'm spending $1 billion in India next year. That's got to get me X amount of Indian users versus also retain my existing users. How do you look at that? I think you should think of each of these countries maybe as, or, or uh, geographies of having a P&L. Right. And so, you know, it is global. Like when you make a show like Stranger Things, you allocate that cost across all regions. And certainly it probably has a higher cost in the U.S. because it's watched more and, and, you know, has custom, you know, native language in the U.S. that's just going to make it more popular than India. But India will absorb some of that cost. Um, and when, when, you know, they simply take Bollywood's top talent and make a Bollywood show, some of that cost comes back to the U.S. because you spread that cost. The revenue that will needs to exceed that cost to be a profitable business is a pure function of local subscribers. So, you know, in the U.S., they have 60 million plus subscribers paying, you know, 13, 15 bucks. That is their cap on what they can spend in content. They shouldn't be spending more than 60 million times 15 per month in the U.S. or they're running a non-profitable segment in the U.S. They can do that in India. They have, you know, 5 million subscribers. They can be spending as if they have 10 or 20 million because you have to forward buy that and these subscribers will stay and help you train your algorithms and, and everything else in between. But at some point they will look at, you know, here is our long-term steady state sort of growth in India. We've now passed this sort of, you know, investment phase and now we want to expand margins. It's what they're doing in Europe. That's what they're doing in Latin America. And that dictates the spend, right? So what's how many, I think in, in, uh, in Europe, they're approaching 50, 60 million subscribers they're going to try and spend less revenue for that to get that market profitable, you know, and as Spain different than France and Germany, yeah, they all have different enterprises, but at a, at a sort of portfolio level, Europe needs to be profitable and it needs to increase every period. So they need to add more subscribers than they add more content and operating costs. And that's how the budget gets sent, uh, you know, with some leeway for forward acquiring subscribers. You almost model out in, like, again, let's just say, for example, hundred million households in India, you say, right, we can, we can get to 40 million so we can spend this budget, assuming we have 40 million subscribers in India and just kind of have the long-term view and work back from that and, and try and acquire those customers. I think that's right. I mean, they, they don't expect to get 40 million tomorrow, nor do they expect to spend at the 40 million level, but something between, you know, call it the 2 million they're at and the 40 and earn their rights, you know, to start spending as if you have five or 10 million customers. And then when you get to five or 10, start spending like you have 10 or 20. And then when you have 20, Maybe spend like you have 20. Not an exact framework, but yeah, that, that's how to think about it. And how do you look at the different distribution dynamics internationally versus the U.S. and how that feeds through to the unit economics? So uh, distribution, I would say, is um, you know, a challenge everywhere. You can, you can ride on top of existing platforms. Like iOS and Android exist mostly globally. And so when Netflix launches in a new country, it doesn't have to strike a deal with Android or, or iTunes. You know, it's kind of a global deal for the most part. And, and then users know how to download apps and, and, you know, on their smartphones and tablets. As you get to TV, it's a little harder. You have to work with a TV provider like Samsung to get in their store or Vizio or, or name your provider. They've been doing that for decades and are very good at it and are very good at thinking about global deals. So when they make an app for Sony TVs, they say, put, put it on in the U.S., but also put it on in Sony TVs in Japan and 
and they've negotiated those deals globally. I think those are, are largely comparable, and you know there may be some regional nuances, but but they're set up very structurally. That the newest amount of distribution emerging is with traditional distributors of of content like Comcast or even newer distributors like T-Mobile and Verizon, right? So with Verizon, you now get Disney Plus for a year for free. And then Netflix shares some revenue back to Verizon or Disney does as well. So that is a really great boon, again, for new users. I don't think Netflix needs or these laggards that are just not in a position to go to a website, enter a credit card, are very used to like sticking with their cable bundle and adding one more channel the way they used to add HBO. So it reaches a different segment of the population that maybe is just a little less apt to be a direct consumer. Uh, but it's still, I think, as they say, a very small percentage of their overall growth. So I think they rely on their, their primary acquisition to still be sort of the organic channel where you just go to their website, sign up. You've heard about the great content that they're marketing. You've heard about the great you know, sort of simplicity of the service, and you go and do that. But they don't want to limit themselves from an older demographic or an international demographic that may never heard of them. So I think these deals may be more critical uh, when you enter India to be on India's largest, you know, sort of mobile provider or, you know, something else like that. But really, I, I do think it's a short term sort of boost because over the long term, users are going to get these services, right? They're going to find ways, the vast majority. And you want to make it as easy as possible. But but it's not like, you know, they're not going to go and find their favorite show because of the website. That, that user is probably uh, a few of them. But so I, I think they're complimentary on it. Netflix has been sort of leading this industry for years and on, on how you think about distribution with hardware devices, with cable providers, with, with mobile providers. And I don't think the cost, again, uh, represent that they're sort of in sync with the market. So, if, you know, India has a, a lower price point at $399, $499 for a plan. The revenue share on distribution is going to be a percentage of that, not a percentage of $1599 in the U.S. So it, it balances sort of both ways. If that's a long answer to the question. But then let's look at that. So for ex, you know, let's just say, for example, 2 million subscribers in India. Let's say that Netflix want to spend $4 billion next year in India, for example, right? Hypothetically. So you would, you would model out or you would assume new customers. But then you have to work out, obviously, the lower ARPU in that market plus the, I guess, the lower contribution margin from paying distributors more so potentially. How do you look at and amortizing that content cost over all of the users, if only it's local content? Like, I'm just trying to work out how you look at actually really allocating that capital in new regions. Yeah, look, there, there's probably a lot of work going into it. I'll give you a more simple framework. And I do think for all the, the science and data that Netflix brings, they, they, they represent a very simple view that this is going to happen. Adoption of streaming video is going to happen. It went from zero to 60 million in the US. It went from zero to 50 million in Europe, and it's going to happen in India. And we can debate the, the, the sort of time frame, but not the if. Uh, they may be wrong on that view, but that is their view. So, if, you know, if India has potentially what's called a market of 40 million high-speed, affluent customers that can afford, you know, to pay a plan and, and put in a type of billing that works with Netflix, it will happen. We can debate that's over two years or five years, but or 10 years. And then who is going to get that share? That's the same way. Everybody's going to get a smartphone and we can debate Android versus iPhone share versus somebody else's. But India is now going to happen in streaming video or it is anomalous to the rest of the world because it's happened in Latin America, it's happened in Europe, it's happened. In so how do you attack the Indian market? Do you have some, you know, Excel jockey figure out every dollar and dime and you know, case of this? Yeah, they, they do their best of that that they can, but really it is a learning ecosystem, right? We're going to try some original local content. And if it doesn't work, we're going to try some different one. And I'm going to try licensed content. And if we see a lot of great 
district, you know, signups because when we do a marketing through Facebook and Google traditional advertising channels, we get a lot of signups. If we don't, we're going to expand the partnership. So there's no sort of single playbook that you should have more, you know, distribution partnerships than you should have more, you know, paid advertising. This category is going to come and Netflix figures it out. So, you know, the same question is how much should Netflix spend in the U.S. on sort of premium television versus unscripted. Well, they're going to spend a billion dollars on unscripted and if users continue to sign up, then they're going to, and they get great reviews, they're going to go from a billion to a billion and a half. If it's not working, they're going to take that billion down to 500 million and take the extra money and, and try movies or try, you know, documentaries or, or, or move it to a different country. So this is all really about sort of pushing it out, testing it and seeing if it works and then having a very long time to iterate and move it across the globe on a, on a thesis that it will happen. And, if you are consumer friendly and consumer focused, you will iterate to sort of this, this thing. And what they know, having done 180 countries, is that there is a taste for local content in Europe. There's a taste. Maybe it's 20% because they've always had a closer tie to America than, than other regions. And in India, they enter with an a prior hypothesis that India has one of the strongest content preferences for Bollywood, you know, and does not a, as large a importer of Hollywood content. So when they started that catalog, they started with 50% instead of 20% they would start in Europe. Maybe the final mix will be 70% local, 40% local. They will spend and test their way into that. And so long as they're growing, you know, they have very clear signal on what's working and what's not when you, viewers watch. It's the clearest signal. Right. But also the lower the crossover between the content viewing hours, I guess, the lower the, the cash margin for that region. For example, India, you know, if most of the world is not going to be interested in as much as in local Indian content, then you can't really amortize that cost over all the users, really. Because I think one question around Netflix is around the amortization of the content, right? And so part of it is, you know, you can spend $15 billion because you have 200 million users, everyone can get access to this. But if you're producing Indian local content, that no one else is interested on, and Netflix is spending $2, $3 billion, for example, on Indian content, which is not relevant to portion of the users, you can't really amortize that cost. Therefore, that's right. Local content in its way has to pay for itself on that country. And so it's very hard to believe that a small country of, you know, 10 million will have heavy investment. I, I believe the reason Netflix says Indian local content or Japanese local content have bigger budgets than I'm picking on Norway, but any Norway friends or anybody else, there's not as much Norwegian local content because the base is never there. And, you know, that has always existed. Norway probably imports more, you know, uh, BBC and US content and then has it. But they do have some. And so if the prize in India is 100 million, I think, you know, the prize in Norway is not, it's just not that big a country that they can invest more in local content. The last part of it that also sort of I think represents the investment in local content is they are saying they are truly first one of the global services where India content is playing elsewhere. And obviously there's an, you know, ex-Indian population in Europe and, and, you know, there's an American population in India that crosses over. But I mean, genuinely content that is being introduced to, you know, American uh, citizens or, uh, or Koreans are watching Indian content, you know, different nationalities watching different content. Now, that doesn't happen with every show, but they talk about several Latin American shows that are very popular in Europe and, and some Korean shows that are very popular in America. So look, is that the rule? No. Uh, or do they do it better than anybody else? Yes. Um, but local content will have its cost. And so, you know, I do think the American, you know, 60 million helps subsidize early countries to build that local catalog, but not sort of in a detrimental way where it becomes perverse. Which is quite interesting because then arguably return on the incremental dollar spent on, let's say, Indian content is actually not as high as it would was in the U.S., right? Because that U.S. material could then be used by 
myself in the UK or someone in Norway, you know, or more, more, a more global content slate rather than India, for example, which is not as global as that. Right, right. Ideal portfolio is you produce something in Hollywood that works in all 180 countries. You amortize the cost perfectly. And I think Netflix, you know, again, similarly started with this thesis as they expanded globally that, you know, House of Cards and Stranger Things will work globally. And do we need local content that much? And, and you know, they've, they've been learning this in Latin America. You know, telenovas are very popular. You can't bring an American soap opera. And so telenovas are very, you know, not as expensive production as, as a $100 million movie. So they, they invested there. And then could they do a signature show in, in Europe? It, it, so they have, I think there's also two reasons they do it. One is there's a point where Americans prestige around the world is not exactly at its peak. And so feeling like an American invader also is a PR move to have local content. Secondly, it actually does work. Otherwise, they would not be investing further into it. Thirdly, you know, on a government regulation sort of perspective, uh, this is very important. I think particularly in Europe, where, uh, you know, uh, American regulation of tech companies is probably not a matter of if, but when. And you've seen signals by Netflix of saying we are producing now and employing thousands of people and thousands of, you know, sort of productions across the globe employing local sort of talent here. And so, you know, the government is, is heavily incentivized to have these jobs exist and, and appreciates Netflix bringing that community there. Um, and so I think it, it serves a, a public function as well that is maybe less well understood. But in the end, I do think it is incrementally positive or they were not doing it. Well, I think that's part of the uniqueness or innovative model that Netflix has where it's, it's at such scale and, you know, yes, they can amortize it over everyone, but yes, everyone might not watch the content, but it's just, it's redefined the whole media space that it, it's still quite interesting to try to get your head around it about how to look at allocating capital and incremental returns on, on that capital. Yeah. And I think what's most interesting about this unique model, as you put it, is there's a lot of people trying to copy the domestic model. I don't see as many trying to copy or nearly as close in copying this international model with local content, right? So the plan for Warner is to aggregate all its U.S. brands. And, you know, they've probably talked about some international. Disney probably has the best shot at its content traveling and, and nationally, but still it's going to produce most of it locally and then hope its animation works globally. But Netflix truly being a global brand where content hubs flow across and how you spread those costs and how you allocate, should you produce another Japanese show or another Indian show, it is very complicated, but also um, very unique in, in, in the competitive advantage that it gives them. And so just going into detail then here, so on content spend specifically, like, and also for, for shows individually. So how did you look at the return on a show? It isn't often thought of a show P&L, right? So, you know, uh, I mean, the framework may have changed, and I'm sure it always evolves a little bit. Like you spend $100 million on a show and nobody watches, well, that show's going to be canceled. But they don't go, you know, this show was 100, and then over the next three years, it, it, it earned this views, and we do some, you know, IRR on that. It really is a portfolio of, like, we're spending, you know, $5 billion in the U.S. on content, and is this the right $5 billion to spend? What's working? What's not? Let's cancel it. And the market, in many ways, dictates the price, right? So there are more bidders now. It is a great time minus the COVID pandemic. Prior to that, I should say, it was a great time to be a content creator. You had Apple. Amazon, AT&T and HBO, Netflix, bidding up prices to extreme levels for the best content in the world because the best content outperforms. And so, you know, that will sort of continue where Netflix spends a, a large amount on content. Say the US, for example, then let's say 5 billion spend in the US. Do you try and work out 
you know, four and a half billion is for is kind of retention, and then maybe you test with new genres to kind of drive new growth, or is it really just the market dictates the quality of the genres and shows? And yeah, sorry, <laughs> I'm thinking through this because you know it, it, it's a it's a breathing, leaving organization that learns all the time. But I, if I were to try and give listeners a sense of how they attack it, it is far less spreadsheet. Although, trust me, I did plenty of spreadsheets, and there are plenty of folks that do it well, and a little more sort of crawl, walk, run. Right. So to enter originals, they did House of Cards. They put a big for their best four foot, you know, outbid HBO, two seasons, a hundred million dollars, sort of set a mark in the industry, but they did not commit to a hundred shows in that first year. They committed to one quarter and then they did Orange is New Black and they saw the success. And then they said, We're gonna double this. And then they saw more success. And then they, they said, We're gonna double that again. And then they said, Well, now this last double of having more what I'll call premium HBO serialized dramas is not sort of worth it. You know, we added Orange and New Black and, you know, we went from 30 nominations to 40 nominations and, and Emmys, but we really haven't expanded, you know, our universe. Uh, we did from, you know, the first doubling, but the second doubling, we're just getting our users more hooked, but we're not expanding new users in that are not joining Netflix because we do not have a half hour sitcom that is just to tune out or we do not have. A re- and so we're not going to double again because, you know, we see this, what we'd rather take is the amount we're spending on this serialized dramas and fine tune it. Of course, it'll grow, but it, it will not grow at 100% clip rates. It'll grow at 10 or 20 in line with overall content spend, or maybe it'll lag content spend because we've been growing at 100%. It'll still grow. I think every category there is probably growing. But we're not seeing marginal acquisition. We're not seeing marginal awards or prestige come out of this. Let's do the new category. Let's do unscripted. Let's do documentaries. Let's do comedy specials. Let's do movies. And each of these requires, you know, so then they enter movies and they spend $150 million on this is probably they've done a lot more efforts before that and they say this is working now let's do another one and, and you know uh, or this didn't work it was a great bio epic it was great it, it got a lot of oscars but frankly you know it's not a lot of money. we're going to do a lot of action movies now uh, we're going to get the michael bays of the world and and did the michael bay movie do good now we're going to do two more of those so they're trying to launch their own james bond franchise one of the head of ones you know if that goes great they'll do more if not they'll say what are we doing wrong with movies uh let's do something different or let's let's scale it back but that's, it's an iterative approach, and the data comes because it's tested with hundreds of millions of subscribers, you know, across globes, you know, do franchises work, do sequels work, and they learn, and then they, it's still a very much creative process, the content has to be good. So, you know, whether you say you're going to spend this money, if, if the content doesn't turn out the way you want, it doesn't matter. You can't sort of put that into your formula. You spent the 100 million, and you got a bad output. You need to respend it and get it a great output. And that's why I think when they enter a category, their bias is to work with the best, to work with the Scorsese's, to work with the David Fincher's, because they want to remove that variable of the content not being the best and sort of focus on where they're deficient. Is it distribution? Is it the release model, all episodes? Is it the marketing? And tweak those variables and sort of isolate as much as possible that the content was great. I mean, somewhere though, eventually there's going to be some kind of maintenance content spend to serve a user base. Right. And so take, take the US, 70 million, let's say it chugs along you know, five to seven million new ads for the next five years. You know, what do you think is like a, a maintenance run rate of content to actually serve or retain those users? Well, I don't think we're approaching it anywhere now, so we don't know. But I, I, you know, I think for the, the serious investor, they laid out a few previews right now. They're not spending as much as they would like in a way because content is frozen, right? It, it's hard to restart productions and all of that. And they're not Having subscribers, well, I should say, 
they, they are still giving them a lot of fresh content because that all that content was made a year ago. But we know what they're spending now sort of has best in class retention, right? They are continuing to grow subscribers even at the 60 million base, which is pretty challenging. So whatever content they're spending in the US right now appears to be enough to give them growth and strong retention. So I don't know where the steady state stops. They certainly are, are not signaling it. But you have a preview of the content spend and the profits and the margins it could produce if they were to turn it all off tomorrow. And so I think users can take that as a comfort that, that if you wanted to go to steady state, uh, you would probably lower the growth, but you could sort of be like a traditional media company where these users that have been with you for five years are not likely to cancel. You could keep your content budget flat-ish. You know, when an old show runs, you bring in a new show, and, and that would work for users. I think they are going to continue to invest in content because it's not about the amount of content, but maybe about the pricing that they could charge. So, I, I, you know, we can talk about this throughout the interview, but, but adding movies is adding theoretically less content. When you produce a two and a half hour show, a movie, it's less than 10 hours of content that you get from a, a TV show. But a user is willing to pay $30 for a movie is what Disney believes, or, you know, $20 a ticket times four users in, in a major metropolitan area, $80. So if Netflix is bringing those type of quality movies to the service, can it charge $20, $25? I don't know where the ceiling is, but, but they should not stop investing, and I do not think have any plans to, because I think it's not only about more users, it's also about higher prices. And so I think you'll continue to see great content added in great categories that will expand the user base and also give them pricing power as well versus maintenance. How do you look at retention for Netflix? It's thought about a lot of ways, right? But it, it, the most simple users, if they have 190 million users today, how many of those 100 million are going to subscribe in August and September? And, you know, they all 190 and 1% cancel, that'd be great. If 10% cancel, they have to think about something. So, you know, how do you peel back that onion? Well, they know a few things, right? They know the longer you've been with them, the more likely you are to stay with them. So users who just sign up for one month have a higher cancellation rate than you've been with them for five years. That's pretty intuitive. That's true in all sort of subscription services. And therefore, in that thesis, users in the U.S. who have the service has been around for a long time are much stickier than maybe users in India, right? Uh, because they've been in India operating at scale for one or two years. The recommendation algorithm and knowing your user's preference over time just gets better and better. The content gets better and better as they learn the right mix of movies and local content. So retention should improve or, you know, sort of steady state over time. And then the most correlated metric, I think, with retention uh, is viewing, right? If you are viewing, you will probably say Netflix is worth it and I'm going to stick with you next month. That's not always true. They had users that had not viewed in two years signed into their and, and still paying their $12 just because it's such a low price. They just sort of, you know, put the press release out that they're canceling those users to be consumer friendly. But it's a mix of those two things, right? Viewing is based on content, though, right? On new content as well. Viewing is based on content, right? Yeah, new or old. But, but how many times does a user log in and watch a Netflix show? If there's too many days or too many months where that goes by, somebody's going to get that user. Either that user's going to cancel or that user's going to say, I should go to Disney or somebody else who, who has the content I want. And so Netflix almost has a more clear model than anybody else because it's on a monthly cancellation policy. There's no annual contracts or very few, I should say, sometimes when you sign up with one of the distributors like T-Mobile, it's bundled in or something like that. But they get very clear signals that the users are not happy and they, they don't try to lock them in to these year packages because it's clear data signal of what's failing. So they can look at these cohorts and say the cohorts that joined in January of 2020 are way worse than 18. What's going on? Or 18 is better. Was it the content that we onboarded? What was the product? 
but every month they learn. And I don't think other media companies that lock users in for a year get that signal quite as robustly and are as, as sort of nimble and moving to, to understand where the user dissatisfaction is. And so Netflix is just learning every day about it. But, let, but let's say, you know, next, in three to five years, Netflix is at 80, 90 million subs in the US. If they reduce their content spend to serve that user base, do you think we're going to see huge churn? Or how do you look at the kind of steady state rate with, with the business serving that 90 million users? I think it's more appropriate that they will plateau content spend, right? Just like, and, and we'd have to say at that point, you know, this is several years out where they have their, call it 80 million in the U.S., and they spend X billion dollars. That sort of happened in the cable industry. I don't know if it's the perfect analogy, but you know, every year you added a new channel. There was ESPN, there was ESPN2, there was AMC, there was you know, HBO, Meta, whatever. And then each one of those channels is adding more content. But we're at a stage right now where most, we're not adding more channels. Most of the channels are not adding more content and you've become you know, sort of a steady state business. And then you try to sell additional businesses on top, which is, you know, you know, triple play for those guys or, or high speed internet. And, and so they are all evolving in their own ways. But yeah, it's not likely content catalog goes up, content spin goes up because the, every content provider charges higher price for the same content. And NFL wants more for, you know, the rights than it wanted five years ago. And, and you'll have to figure out that with users. Um, I think that is one advantage when Netflix gets there, it will own a large amount of its content. So its whole library is paid and owned for, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the case today where one of its most popular shows, friends or the office can go away. Uh, as Netflix approaches this plateau, it will own its catalog, you know, and it will, it'll own sort of, you know, the ability to introduce those shows to several users that, that feel new in the same way that my son is watching Winnie the Pooh and Wally on Disney. They're new to him. Uh, and Disney with essentially just an archive catalog has signed up 60 million subscribers, right? They're introducing some new content, but their production is largely frozen and they're, you know, not putting their newest theatrical content there. So that archive can become very powerful. Uh, you know, I think that is what Netflix will have to build to sort of level out its content spend, you know, more evergreen lasting content. Right. So as the content spend plateaus, it might be a less dollar spend per U.S. subscriber but you've got the whole back catalog that is adding value and then people can search. You've got the recommendation engine that's serving you new, fresh content that may seem fresh for the user. That's right. And of course, they're still paying for that content. I mean, you amortize this content over years, but it still feels new to the user, still feels fresh. And hopefully you've built some franchises that you will build sequels and new character universes on top of, which, which then also gives you advantages because you know everybody who watches Spider-Man 2 likes Spider-Man 1. Your marketing cost is a little lower. The users know what to expect. I think we're many years away from that. I think Netflix is still in the innovation stage in, in a lot of categories, theatrical movies, non-scripted, uh, competition. So before we, you know, worry about that, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, their serialized dramas, I bet you a lot of people are discovering things that they released three or four years ago as much as they're releasing their newest show. And so I, I think that's a powerful uh, sort of lever for them as they approach steady state. What is it? that you think people misunderstand about Netflix? Because, you know, there's some views out there where it's like, Netflix is not even profitable, you know, excluding this quarter. Netflix doesn't have any cash, it's just burning cash, you know, et cetera. What do you think mis people misunderstand about the economics of their model? Well, you know, there's obviously starting to become a, a large understanding, particularly post-COVID, of how powerful this would be. There's been an incredible investor appetite. 
you know, both from the retail side and institutional investors putting out positive reports that the economics are there. So there, there's very few bears that understand it, I think, uh, or, or that are making, I think, a great sort of counter view that maybe a few years ago was a free cash flow. I think the one part I always heard was competition uh, that it would be Netflix killers. Disney Plus now has 60 million subscribers and Netflix has grown during the same time. So I, don't, I think thinking of this as zero sum is wrong and that view has been out there. I don't know if it's still out there as much, but, but people likely have more than one or two streaming packages put together for their entertainment choice. The area that, that strikes me as the most still least appreciated part of Netflix strategy and, and, and advantage is its product. It's engineering and, and product development talent and lead, right? So to enter the space, you know, we probably have all you know, pegged Disney as one of the best because their content catalog is arguably better than Netflix. Their marketing may be even better. And, you know, everything they can do with their theme parks and cruises and all that put together, it's certainly going to be a fun competition to watch these two people. But, uh, and I, I'm a big fan of Disney and, and their service, but where I have said they are behind, if they are ahead in marketing and, and content, they are, in my opinion, behind in technology and product. It is very underappreciated what Netflix has put together on its recommendation algorithm and its product interface where the cover image art you see is tested differently than what I see. And, and you may be more likely to select an episode based on that type of testing. They can sub and dub in 30 languages and they've invested sort of the best technical capabilities in doing that where there's no buffering uh, while you wait for your show because they've embedded local servers in every country and, and co-embedded with, with local um, ISP providers to make sure that, you know, there's no buffering time. This is not built overnight. Disney spent $3 billion to acquire MLB streaming, which was more for live platform. They don't have, at least in my interface that I use, a profile. So that the content I watched for Disney could be different than my son. I might like Mandalorian and he might like more early, you know, children's shows. Netflix introduced that feature five years ago, you know? So I'm not saying it's like you got to hire, you know, the most expensive engineers in the world, but think about what Netflix will do over the next five years in its product development. While Disney is just, or Warner or anybody else, just catching up to sort of the table stakes features of recommendations, profiles, downloading videos for offline viewback. This is all incredibly well done, all incredibly A-B tested and thought out. And there are thousands of engineers in, you know, uh, Netflix's Los Gatos headquarters working on every one of these problems. And so most times when Amazon enters a space, they crush the competitor. Amazon entered into the space a decade ago almost, and Netflix has thrived and, and out, you know, uh, spent and out, out innovated Amazon because it's so focused on that. It probably has, you know, more engineers working on Amazon than Amazon does. And that, that's one of the few sort of focuses it does on its product to make sure it's best in class. Do you think Netflix has a competitive advantage in curating the content, i.e. creating local content and then making it and globalizing it versus other, whether it could be HBO or, you know, like I said, Amazon, Apple trying to do this? I don't know if Netflix has an advantage per se in like, getting better scripts than HBO has, right? The script comes to everybody and then you bid. And do I think, you know, they're better at giving notes or running production sets because of their, you know, production control using technology? Probably, maybe, I don't know. I think they have an advantage is, is their model from day one has been global rights. So when they film a show, with, you know, not day one, uh, House of Cards was not available and then they have to go acquire the rights, and blah, blah. But, but since you know, they've really invested in originals. When they make their latest episode, 
they usually acquire it for all 180 plus countries. They have those rights. And I don't know the specifics of every content provider, but my understanding is, you know, HBO will have Game of Thrones here on the HBO brand and on the Sky brand in, in Europe and on a third brand in India. And then it's six months later when it releases in Australia. And I'm drawing a purposefully archaic one. I'm, I know these competitors are working and, and have a lot of streamlined rights, but a lot of their deals are locked up in sort of rights that are very complicated, distributed, windows that are hard to unwind and is not even their DNA philosophy. So when Netflix makes a show, we can have a global conversation because every traditionally everybody gets it at the same time on the same day at the same point. And so, you know, we're watching that show and having a global conversation in a global world that I think gives them a distribution advantage. If I want to tell my friend in, in France about this show, I can say, hey, do you have Netflix? Watch it. Do you see that change when your time? Did you see the percentage of local content or non-US content change view in the US? Has it grown? I'm quite certain it has because they were boosting very little of it. Now they have. And many of those shows are working. You know, I watched a Latin American original. I'm sure everybody has done one or two. So do I think it's meaningful where the US is going to have 30, 40% of its viewing coming from international countries? I doubt it in the short term. But those short-term members can call me and I can call them. And the opposite is when Disney makes something that might have global resonance, they can't distribute it globally. So I can't call my friend in, in France and say, do you have Disney Plus? It's not even available. And can I call my friend in Toronto and say, can you get it? Well, you know, uh, they may be launching in Toronto, but the rights are different. And so they, yes, they have Game of Thrones here in the US on HBO Max, but in Canada, it's on a different provider. And so I can't tell my friend, go get, I, have to, I don't know, it's on XYZ service. And Netflix doesn't do that, right? HBO and, and Disney and others have carved up their rights, you know, in the old model and, and they'll stop doing that. But when you try to distribute a show and you have these legacy things, it can be on one of your competitors. In fact, Netflix has Disney shows in Europe and in Asia. And so if I want to watch one of Disney's new titles, it may be on Netflix and Disney, you know, loses that distribution advantage in some ways until they can produce to get to global scale and global rights. Who do you think has power in the value chain? Right. So, so the old adage, you know, that somebody came up with is content is king and that that's, you know, the, the advantage. I think that's partly true. And, and, you know, right, every time there's a showdown with the, the traditional cable providers and the content, we're going to drop AMC or we're going to drop CBS, content wins because the content is available on somewhere else. If CBS isn't being carried on Comcast, then you can go get CBS on on Time Warner Cable or a direct channel, you know? And so it's a, these new battles that are being fought with, you know, HBO Max not being carried on Amazon's Fire TV platform or Roku or, you know, these battles of carriage almost that we used to have are going to continue. And, you know, I don't know if the dynamics are the same, but I would say having great content still matters a lot, right? Because I couldn't get HBO through my Fire TV so I just went to a website, signed up for it, and got it. It is an inconvenience that it's not playing on my Fire TV, and that makes it less likely I will watch it sometimes. So, you know, both sides have a little bit of power in that. But I'm sure that, you know, if this goes on for on, I probably won't buy a Fire TV. I will buy an Apple TV. So we, we have a marketplace that allows for substitutes and competition, and you'll have these battles. And I don't know what position they're jockeying for and, you know, Again, there's even regulation about this on what Apple is charging for its iTunes 30% cut and, and sort of scrutiny around all of this distribution, gatekeeping, uh, sort of monopoly effects here that, that will play out over several years. But, but however that landscape plays out, what you want to have is great content 
at a great price wrapped in a great service. And I think that's what Netflix has, right? Like, so if, if somebody decides to stop hearing Netflix or Disney, it is going to be the consumer that puts pressure on both sides. And they will apply that pressure by saying, we want Netflix. And I, I've yet to meet the distributor that is ready to try and uh, go to battle Netflix. I mean, you know, even Comcast in its heyday and, and all the net neutrality was, was, you know, there was a lot of sort of, would Netflix be, you know, throttled by Comcast? They put those deals in place. It, it will happen. Do you have the risk, though? Do you think the Comcast of the road can, can squeeze Netflix even slightly to put pressure on them? I'm sure they could. I don't think it's smart. I think Comcast and others have realized this is a win-win business potentially, right? Comcast is now, you know, probably on a transition out of the cable business and, and we'll see high-speed internet be much more critical to their growth than traditional cable bundles. And what is best at selling high-speed internet is high-speed applications like Netflix that use intensive bandwidth. And so Comcast is going to be able to move users up its, its high-speed price tiers because services like Netflix and Disney are there. Now, should they extract some rent from that? Probably, maybe. I don't know what will happen. But I, I don't think the smart operator is going to say, we need to, to, to do this right now. Because just like Netflix has plenty of growth in its existing business, there's plenty of growth still in the data business, right? We're all going to move to 5G and higher speed connections. We're all going to become more data hungry with smart devices and smart homes. So I'm hoping we avoid some of these battles as people understand that it's only destructive when you do this. And the squeezing, it's not what investors are focused on, right? Whether you make a dollar and a penny or a dollar and two cents, it's about whether you have 10 million users or 100 million users. And I think that's, that's the focus as opposed to these distribution skirmishes. If you were looking at Netflix, what would you be worried about? What do you think are the biggest risks? I think, you know, a creative fatigue would certainly worry me. You know, HBO was king in, in the 90s and early 2000s with shows Sex and City, Sopranos. They couldn't miss, uh, or if they missed, it certainly uh, wasn't noticeable. And then they went through this creative fatigue period where they just didn't have a lot of great content. I don't know if it's because they took less risk, executives, something in there happened, and then they had a, a real renaissance Game of Thrones and Westworld and, and we can name a million shows. And should Netflix ever start to rest on its laurels in any of those categories, you know, you will see users flock to better content. That, it, it's, a, it's a dynamic marketplace. And so that worries me most. I think, that, you know, Ted Sarandos was just named co-CEO, has an excellent team. You know, uh, they, they talk about uh, sort of rewarding uh, and, and, seeking more risk and failure. They want shows to get canceled because it means they're taking chances. So I think they have the right creative culture there. But, you know, that can happen as it happened to HBO. It happened at Disney in the 90s. A lot of that can happen when you start relying on franchises and sequels only. The executives become a little complacent on success. I don't see that now, but that that worries me just like any big company worries me. Uh, Regulation is a secondary worry that we could talk about. That probably is what keeps me up. On that point, Bobby, what is it about the culture that you experienced the drives creativity? Well, you know, it, 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 both entertainment and technology, I think inherently are creative cultures, right? Silicon Valley and Hollywood in California, just it's got a creative culture. They push the envelope forward in, in the culture that, you know, Hollywood's been doing that the way we talk and what we think about. Very serious topic like religion and race have been introduced in entertainment and more lighthearted measures. Of, and similarly with technology. So I think you have sort of both creative cultures in technology and in content. And I think that almost, you know, probably creating my own narrative here, but, but that you name two CEOs, Ted and Reed. I think both very innovative, creative thinkers, and, and they formalize that structure now that both 
the tech innovation and the creative culture and innovation are almost equally important. And it's one of the few to do this and recognize this, right? So most media companies shun technology or partner with somebody like YouTube and you get in the squirmish. Do you respect the rights? Do we respect your business model? Do you respect consumer preference? Netflix from day one, I think, has had both those competencies in the driver's seat. And then, you know, just has a, a wrapper around it that believes, you know, uh, you have to take risks and you have to take chances to grow with a growth-minded uh, orientation. I, I think they are, are, are just naturally there. Last question, Bobby, and that's how do you see the market shaking out? Well, you know, like I said, streaming video is here to stay. I think linear packages, you know, I, I think on this call, we, we talked about 90 million subscribers at peak, and now I think we're approaching maybe, you know, 80 and downward, you know, uh, to 60 in, in time, if not lower. So I do think there's a replacement of linear packages to streaming packages. Do streaming packages come from one provider, multiple providers, probably multiple providers, right? It's likely that you will have Netflix and Amazon and Disney or Disney and Amazon and HBO Max and users will put together their own bundles. It's hard to believe that you can have five to 10 sort of providers here that users want to enter their credit cards into five or 10 providers and, you know, sort of keep track of what's coming out on five or 10 providers. So we're calling, you know, in many ways to a little bit of a balkanized world because I don't think you're going to get a simple TV guide. Uh, you know, that's the other part of this, this, this world that, you know, as much as it's better, maybe lower priced and more convenient on demand on any screen at any time. I can't do a simple search on my Apple TV or my Fire TV to search across providers of a show, right? And, and so you don't have that TV guide world, which means it's going to be pretty hard for a small provider to get distribution and access. You know, you can be on Amazon's platform on Fire or iTunes or Roku, but what is an incentive for me to go download your app when I've got these four providers already giving me nearly, you know, $40, $50 billion of content spend? And so that is going to get very interesting. And then as these battles weigh out, it's hard to imagine that, you know, HBO Max has the muscle to fight and, and sort of jockey with Amazon, but does a small provider. And I don't mean small, like me and you go start a startup. I mean, discovery uh, networks or AMC networks that are late to the game, that do not have huge catalogs of content, that do not have huge engineering teams to build these global platforms. Because I do think this is, you know, a scale game as we talked about. So I do think there's a consolidation. What do you think happens to those players? Some fold, some get acquired, and some may, you know, maybe make it through in a niche way, right? So Discovery's content is lower priced. They are not hiring, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and paying him, you know, $100 million to produce three films for Netflix. They're shooting nature documentaries. So can you have a lower cost of content and have a niche offering? Potentially. It'll be hard, but I, I think that is a strategy for some. I think a lot of them move to advertising because that model, you know, the TV dollars will come out as that bundle goes out. Television advertising is more, uh, I mean, digital video ads are more targeted, more, uh, you know, sort of able to get data feedback loop on who watches and retarget. And I think you've seen a little bit of activity there with Viacom buying Pluto's and others. But again, on advertising, you have to have massive, massive scale, massive data infrastructure to do this correctly. So again, YouTube looks to be like a natural winner there and Facebook as well. So I feel there's a consolidation that most consumers are going to have three to five entertainment choices, more on the three than the five, some power users on five. You have to have you know, heavy infrastructure that we talked about to produce a technology product on par with Netflix or Disney. And so I think it's very hard to imagine so many direct services. I think those few folks merge and consolidate, but a lot of them will look to be 
become, you know, quote, arms dealers, right, that will distribute to the highest bidder. You can produce a great show and bid Netflix against Amazon if you're Discovery versus producing your own Discovery Direct distribution channel. And I, I don't mean to pick on Discovery. Maybe they have a great strategy in place. You want to call it Viacom, Discovery, Scripps Networks. A few of these guys are behind where they need to be now, and we'll have to figure it out. But for the big ones, the future is theirs. What about 10 years' time, Bobby? Did you see Netflix with sports, with news, you know, would they have some advertising on the platform somehow? How, how do you, what's your vision of how this can evolve 10 years out? Yeah, 10 years is, is awfully dangerous to predict, right? But I do see them being a large player in movie and entertainment. That'll still be their base. And I don't imagine, I can't, at this point, you know, when you say a 10-year thesis, why they would move into advertising and sports the way we look at that industry right now. I think it was a little more confusing a year ago that like sports represented something and live represented something. But as the trends look now, boy, advertising invites a lot of scrutiny from, you know, uh, political advertising that Facebook and Twitter are dealing with from uh, social issues with advertisers having to drop certain networks because of uh, all the, the sort of social changes that are going on in the U.S. and the world, the, the ad sales force, the technology, it's just not an area that seems like, you know, investors should flock toward running into advertising because it, it's, and then sports itself is, you know, undergoing massive changes from the social pressures from the pandemic issues that they're facing, where the rights are going to be very complicated on, on how many games get played. And thirdly, as that shift happens, the major sports leagues are going to face increasing competition from esports, from other forms of entertainment that users are going to condition themselves like gaming over the next year and a half, right? So I would expect continued ratings declines and engagement for a lot of these leagues that just do not make an attractive industry. Think Netflix could get into gaming? Like Witcher and those, and those... I certainly think that's more likely than, you know, signing up the NFL rights uh, in, in a decade. And, and I would put that, again, if they start bets, I don't think it's traditional gaming like, you know, again, what Xbox is going to do with, you know, that intensive hardware and cloud computing platform. But look at what they're doing in Interactive right now, right? So they, they a few years ago, launched uh, uh, Black Mirror and Kimmy, and Kimmy Schmidt, Interactive, Choose Your Own Adventure. Now I've seen that appear in kids' titles. And so this interactivity element, you can call that gaming, you call it interactivity. I think they will be doing more of that in a decade. And maybe they will, you know, have gone beyond that. But, but that looks like, to me, the seed that is being planted for that decade bet of interactivity. I wouldn't call it gaming. But that looks the most interesting to me and how they apply interactivity on their platform and other platforms. You know, if they ride on other as smart TVs get smarter, there will be buttons and, and voice and other things that they can take advantage of that we just can't get right now. 